So what we've been doing in here for the last uh, few months, with lots of breaks in between, is a red letter study. And for those of you who are here for the first time or not sure what that is, that is going through the Bible looking at the words of Jesus that are sometimes printed in red ink in some editions of the Bible, just to set them off from the, the rest of the material. And so the words of Jesus, but the surrounding context. As always, we're going to be looking at Jesus and his words from a first century Hebrew Aramaic point of view, which changes everything. And sometimes we'll throw in some Greek, too, because sometimes that, that kind of complements the Aramaic. But that's the idea. If we can understand what Jesus' first followers, in their context, in their culture, in their worldview, in their language, understood from Jesus' words, that's going to be the closest we're going to be able to come to really knowing what it was he meant as he said it, end running 2,000 years of uh, Western Christianity and the accretion that always happens, right? So that's what we're trying to do. We want to get as close as we can to what Jesus was meaning and saying and the way that his followers were taking it. And last week, we went through some of the miracles and the healings, right? Uh, talking about uh, that miraculous catch of fish that happened in the uh, Sea of Galilee. Um, before that, it was Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law and from her fever and just various sorts of healings and, and touches and signs and wonders that were gaining Jesus a lot more fame in the region as he went more and more. But the thing to think about is that when he was teaching from Peter's boat just before he told Peter to go out to deeper water. He was giving what we talked about as the logos, right? The, the printed word, the constant word, the word that is intellectually understood, the reason behind the meaning to the people who were safely seated on the shore. But when he talked to Peter and said, put out to deeper water, that was translated, and that we say it's translated just as word in the English, but the Greek behind it is rhema. And rhema is the, the actual utterance of a word, the real-time spoken word. We would say the call. It's, the, in this case, the living word of God. Not the written word of God, but the living word of God. And that word is always immediate, it's always now, and it always requires a response. You can't get away from the living word of God without having some sort of response to it. And the response to Peter is, even though this doesn't make any sense, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing, yes, we'll put out into those same waters, in the deeper water. But notice that there's always a spiritual component to all of the healings of Jesus. Whether he's healing blindness or deafness or paralysis, or whether he is raising from the dead or whatever he happens to be doing, there is always a spiritual component opening us up to greater truth, putting out into deeper water and then having this amazing catch of fish was also the moment of clarity for Peter and, the, and his brother and the fishermen around him. It was their epiphany. It was a moment that they finally went all in and started following Jesus because they understood something deeper. It was a process of becoming more and more familiar with what Jesus was all about and it kind of filtered down into a place where they actually became convinced this is a good thing to do. I always wonder how their wives felt about them going out and following Jesus around. But they decided it was a good thing to do. And of course, they were in such a small area. Of course, they were coming back and taking care of business. They weren't abandoning their families. 
And they had children, and the oldest male would take over the role of the father when he wasn't there. So there was continuity. We always kind of wonder about that. Did they just leave their wives and children and go? No, there would have been continuity, even with Jesus' family as well. So this main healing that we're talking about is spiritual. Whatever the physical healing was, the main component is spiritual. This call to deeper water. This opening up to something greater. And so now Jesus is going to carry on with more healings. And I wanted to just start with Mark 1, starting at verse 35, which is going to be another healing, this time of a leper. So early in the morning, while it was still dark, And here's a great little aside, a great little insight into Jesus' character and the structure that he had for himself, the way that he operated in terms of his interior life, his prayer life. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now Simon and his companions searched for him. I'm sure he was thrilled about that. And they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go somewhere else to towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. But don't you love just that little snippet? Jesus was always doing this. He was always getting up before dawn. He was always going out into some secluded, lonely place. And when he was overwhelmed after a full day of of doing everything that he did, he would get out of Dodge. He would get into some secluded place and reconnect, recharge, I wonder whether he was an introvert or an extrovert. That would be really interesting. This is his introverted side anyway. And he went into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him. A leper comes to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I'm sorry, I'm read that over again. I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. So as you read that paragraph, as we read that paragraph, first thing I hope that you notice is that there's a series of ritual boundaries that are being broken here. Both the leper and Jesus break two of these ritual boundaries in this encounter that they have with each other. Now, the leper is the first one to do it, and he's breaking all the ritual rules from Leviticus 14, 13, 45 to 46 um, that deal with how the group, how the tribes, how the nation of Israel is supposed to deal with lepers, people that have this affliction. What they were supposed to do you know, this, this, uh, this skin infliction, while the infection was visible, the leper had to stay outside the camp or stay outside the city. This goes all the way back to when the, the, the Hebrews were just nomads and they were in tents. So either they had to stay out of the camp or they had to stay out of the city once cities were established. They had to stay away from all people, everyone, including their own family. They had to tear their clothes, rend their clothes, 
which sounds a little strange. And they had to uncover their head. And that's one that's a little strange as well. The word there in the, in the Hebrew literally means to set the head free, which means in idiom to neglect it. In other words, you don't, you don't try to cut your hair. You don't style it. You don't oil it. They used to oil their hair. You just let it go. It just goes wherever it goes. You had to cover your mouth, sort of their version of masking up, I suppose, right? And you had to call out whenever you saw someone in any kind of proximity to you, you had to call out, unclean, unclean, so that they would know to stay away. Now, all that sounds real harsh and all that sounds a little strange, but what they're really doing is they're being forced to assume the attitude of someone who was in mourning. So if you were in mourning because someone close to you died, you would tear your clothes and you would probably put also put ashes on your head, but you wouldn't take care of your outward appearance. And you would, would go through this same kind of process because they are saying that this person needs to be in mourning, first of all, for their sins, because they believe that these kind of afflictions came to people who were sinning. And if they, if they didn't sin, then it was their parents who could have sinned. Anybody could have sinned around them, and they were paying the price for that sin. Now, Jesus debunks all of that when he deals with the man who was born blind, but this was the cultural belief system. And so they're forced into an attitude of mourning for the sin and also for the possibility of their own death. Sounds harsh. And there was a a, a stigmatization that was going on here as well because they were looked at as sinners. They did something to cause this state to, to happen. But it was also just a necessity now, this is before, um, leprosy is caused by bacteria. They didn't know anything about bacteria, right? They didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know really how it was transmitted. And so as a necessity, this is kind of an ancient CDC kind of thing, right? You set this process in place to be able to keep the group safe, keep them distanced, keep them safe, because they didn't exactly know how to avoid an outbreak, but they wanted to make sure that this didn't happen. Now, leprosy is not just Hansen's disease in this ancient context. Hansen's disease is actually what we formally call leprosy. But any visible skin ailment was considered and called leprosy, used, by the, used the same word as, as leprosy, including psoriasis, including syphilis, anything that had outbreaks and lesions on the skin. And that was terrifying for them to see those kind of signs. You know, just think about how we handled COVID here for the last three years. And you kind of get an idea of the kind of terror that that would cause. I mean, no one wants to get this. And it could be pretty ugly when it gets into an advanced stages. But here's the, the kind of the irony of it. Leprosy is not very contagious. You can't get leprosy by just touching a leper. You would have to spend months with a leper and in very close contact in order to finally contract the disease. And mostly it could only be contracted if you touched an open wound with non-intact skin so that the bacteria was actually translated right into your bloodstream. But it's really hard to contract leprosy. But it's really easy to contract syphilis and the symptoms are much the same in terms of the outward visible appearance. And so who knows what it is that we're actually dealing with here in terms of the disease. But out of fear and out of an abundance of caution, they just lumped all these diseases together. 
and then shunned the people. Because as long as that infection was visible, no connection was allowed, no contact, no community, no commerce. You couldn't see your family. You couldn't trade, buy, sell. You couldn't do anything. You were completely excluded, and you were put outside the city walls or outside the camp. So here's this leper. He's breaking all the rules, isn't he? He sees Jesus coming, and he goes to him, moves toward Jesus, and he beseeches him. Now, the Greek word there is parakaleo, which literally means to call nearer, to invite, to implore. And it's in the form of a present participle, which means it's an ongoing, repeated, continuous calling. In other words, he wasn't letting up. He was just calling and calling and calling, getting Jesus to come close. The exact opposite, right, of staying clear, yelling out unclean, and trying to allow the people to give you a really wide berth. Because if he had followed the rules that he was supposed to follow, he wouldn't have come near Jesus. He wouldn't have come into any kind of contact with Jesus. But he was willing to break the rules. He was willing to break limits that were imposed on him by his society, by his tradition, and to a certain extent by himself as well. Think about the other times that Jesus was approached by people who were willing to break the rules. Do you remember when Jesus is having a a meal with a prominent Pharisee named Simon. And this woman who was known to be the most sinful woman in the village comes in, wins her way through the crowd of the house and comes up to Jesus. And of course, they're reclining at the table, kind of like spokes on a wheel, this U-shaped table, and they're all lying down on their left side. And she comes up behind Jesus to, and her, his feet are right in front of her. And she weeps on his feet, and she dries his feet with his tears, anoints him with oil. And, of course, everybody is saying if he was really a prophet, he would know who was touching him because he was being made ritually unclean by the person who was touching him. But she was willing to break all those rules, and Jesus was willing to let her break those rules in order for this connection to be made. How about the, the paralytic can't get into the house and another time that Jesus is teaching and so they tear out tiles of the roof and they lower him down breaking all sorts of rules social rules in order to come into contact this leper is willing to break these rules to come into contact and then he breaks a second ritual boundary he gives a kind of a if then statement right and he's talking directly to Jesus which he wasn't supposed to do he says if you're willing and the then is understood, you're able to cleanse me. You're able to declare me clean. Now, if you're willing, we've talked about this before, the word is sabah in Aramaic. And sabah is a form of sebyana, which means will, but in the sense of desire, delight, pleasure, and deepest purpose. So the will of God the will of Jesus is not just some sort of legal understanding, not just a stream steamroller that kind of lays everyone else's will flat. It's desire and deepest purpose. It's what you delight in. It's what you take pleasure in. It's just what you're going to do if left to your own devices. That's the will. If you are willing, if it is your deepest purpose, you're able to cleanse me. You're able to declare me clean. It's not a question. It's a statement. 
And it seems to be full of confidence on the part of this leper. Because only the temple temple priests had the ritual power to declare someone clean. And then had this long, complicated ritual that would allow them back into community again after they were declared clean. So is this leper approaching Jesus as a priest? Does he see him in that role with that kind of authority? If he is, of course, he's breaking another boundary. Another ritual boundary. Because only the priest had that power. At the very least, this leper is recognizing Jesus' authority. And he is acting on faith in the sense that he is moving on the call. He heard some call, some rhema, that pushed him toward breaking these rules, taking this risk, moving to Jesus in this particular way in order to have a connection with him. And it's not in his mind whether Jesus is able, it's whether Jesus is willing to make him clean, to bring him back into community and connection. And Jesus is moved by this. His emotions are all on display here. He's moved to compassion. He's moved to pity. He feels for this man. And so Jesus breaks his first boundary. What does he do? He reaches out and he touches the leper. You don't do that. By touching the leper, Jesus was made ritually unclean. You only touch after the healing. And you would really only do that until after this eight-day-long ceremony that had to take place with the temple priests. Then you could touch the person again. But anything short of that is going to make you ritually unclean. But this is what he does. He touches the leper before there's a cleansing becoming ritually unclean himself and risking infection himself. Seems not to be anywhere in Jesus' mind. He's moved to compassion and he just naturally reaches out and touches this man. It's this graphic illustration, right, of unconditional acceptance on Jesus' part. And he knows that he's not defiling himself by doing this. What did he say in uh, Matthew 15? He said, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out. You know, they're talking about the, the purity codes and what you could eat and what you couldn't eat and how it defiled. Yeah, it just comes into the body and it's eliminated. <laughs> it's not going to defile you. What comes out comes out of the heart, comes out of the intention. That's a different thing. So Jesus knows this. He's unconcerned. And then he breaks the second boundary. He says to him, Saba'ana, which in Aramaic means I am willing. In other words, it is my desire. It is my greatest pleasure and delight and deepest purpose that you would live clean, that you would live in community and live in connection. Of course, I am willing. And he declares the cleansing. He declares restoration to community, which of course is a violation of all the purity codes. And the physical healing follows the touch. The physical healing follows the pronouncement. That's completely backwards ritually but it's not backwards relationally. That's what you have to understand about Jesus. He is always going to be coming from the relational place, not from the ritual place. What does this relationship need? What does love require? To reach out and touch this person, to reestablish connection, to let them know that they're not nothing, they're not worthless, that they're worth any risk that I can take in order to bring you back into connection 
What do you think was more important to that leper? The cleansing or the reconciliation? I don't know. In his society, you couldn't have one without the other. But I think we can imagine that it was the connection and the reconciliation that really was the important piece. Yeah. I suppose we can all live with psoriasis as long as we can have our family around us. But this is what's going on here in the subtext a little bit deeper. Which is more important to the leper? We can't know. We're not told. But we can imagine. And for Jesus, of course, there's never a moment that restoration isn't a complete reality. For him, it's always about connection. For him, it's always forgiveness. There is never a time when that relationship is broken from perfect love's point of view. Only from ours. Yeah, we talked about shame and Brene Brown last week, right? The reason that we don't connect is because we fear disconnection, which is the best definition of shame you'll ever get. It's the shame that keeps us from connecting. There is no shame from God's point of view. There is no shame from love's point of view. We're just always connected. The relationship is always perfect. We have to understand that. That's what going deeper is all about, going into that deeper water, having that epiphany, is breaking through all the stuff that we have learned and tell ourselves that keeps us from just accepting the fact that we're already forgiven. We're already connected. Now, under the law, there's no acceptance without healing. There is no restoration without healing. And there's a necessity to that, but the necessity is for the group, not for the individual. So in the absence of any kind of medical treatment for these ailments, this is what they had to substitute in order to keep the integrity of the group and ensure the group's survival, the tribe, the clan, the nation. But for Jesus, the acceptance and the restoration and the forgiveness always comes first. My son, your sins are forgiven, he says to the paralytic who's been lowered down. Before he heals him, he just says, hey, you're already in a forgiven state. But your faith has made you whole. Always leading with connection. Always leading with relationship. And it also speaks to the spiritual, the metaphorical content of these healings that are always present. The spiritual restoration is really what Jesus is after. And that connects with every one of these. So after he heals him, he gives him this stern warning. What's that all about? And it's really interesting. The Greek word there for the stern warning is to snort. It's a hoarse sound. <laughs> You're snorting with anger, snorting with indignation. It's that sort of idea, you know, that, that this is a stern warning and it comes out that way. And then the, the sending away is really a casting out. It would be the same word that is used for casting out a demon. There's an there's a, there's a energy to that, even a violence to that. So he's snorting at him and sending him away and saying, do not tell anybody about what's going on here. Go right to the priests and go through the whole ritual. You know, pay honor to the ritual, keep the law. And there's a practical side to that too, because no matter how healed he was, he still wasn't going to be accepted by anybody in the city until the priest declared himself. So. so he was going to need to go through that anyway. Say nothing of the healing. Go to the priests. Do what Moses commanded you to do. Now, why would he do that? I think one of the things is he's trying to minimize conflict with the authorities. 
He's not trying to usurp anything here. He's trying to reform his faith, his institutions from the inside out. But he's not trying to be an iconoclast. He's not trying to tear things down. Jesus always works within the written law. He's always pushing at the oral tradition, but he works within the written law. And so he tells me, keep what Moses commanded you. He's trying to minimize any kind of conflict with the authorities. And I think he's also trying to minimize his notoriety with the people. Because look what happens. Once they found out he can do this, I mean, he's just besieged. Just like winning the lottery, you're always going to have a never-ending supply of best friends. This is what Jesus is happening to him. He's trying to minimize all of that. And, like we said, the man needed to do this. And what is this ritual that that he has to go through? And I thought maybe it would be uh, good just to have a little idea of what is going on here. It sounds simple in the text. Just go to the priest and do what Moses commanded you to do. But the ritual is complex. It takes eight days. And it's expensive. It's almost like a form of tax. You know? It's like you, you get a ticket because you were driving too fast and then you got to pay this big old ticket. Or maybe you got to go to traffic school and you got to do all this. kind. Of, it's kind of like that. There's all this stuff you got to do. And so it's all about the group. It's about the institution. But... Take a look. If a person came who had leprosy or had some kind of skin ailment and it looked like they were cleansed, it's like everything cleared up in their, in their skin, they could present themselves to the, to the priest. But they couldn't do it inside the city or inside the camp. They had to send word that they were cleansed and the priest would come to them outside the camp. And then there was a twofold offering that would take place according to the law of Moses on account of cleansing this leper. The one was on the first day of the cleansing when he first showed himself to the priest outside the camp, right? And consisted of two birds that were alive and clean, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop, and the other later on, eight days later, which was properly the offering on the eighth day, was if the man was able, he had to have two male lambs and one ewe lamb, one female lamb, with a meat offering. If he was too poor for that, then he could bring one lamb with a meat offering and two turtle doves or two young pigeons. But this is expensive stuff to bring those animals. Now, the two birds that are outside the camp with him if he inspects the person and they look like they're clean, they're going to take one of the birds and they're going to slaughter it there and they're going to use the blood to sprinkle and do all of this. The other bird, the lucky one, I don't know how they choose between the two because the other one gets to go free uh, across the field or whatever. And then after that, the, the, the person had to have a ritual bath and they had to shave themselves completely of all their body hair, even their eyebrows. Everything had to go completely shaven, completely hairless. And then this ritual, mikvah or bath. Now, why would they do that? So you can see if any of the lesions are coming back under the hair, right? And so everything had to be shaven because that person now is in a waiting period of seven days. They're going to wait seven days and make sure nothing comes back before on the eighth day they go through the second part, which is to slaughter the lambs and, and do all of that expensive stuff. And then they're going to have to shave again, and then they're going to have to bathe again, and so on and so forth. So it's a big issue. When a leper is healed of his leprosy, they, after they have cleansed him with cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and two birds, and have shaved all his flesh and bathed him, and after this he enters into Jerusalem and numbers seven days, and on the seventh day he shaves a second time, 
as he shaved it first and bathes. And on the morrow, or the eighth day, he bathes a second time. And after they offer this, uh, his offerings, he bathes on the eighth day in the court of the women in the chamber of the lepers, which is there. If it is delayed, and he shaves not on the seventh day, but shaves on the eighth, some days after, on the day he shaves, he bathes, and the sun sets, and on the morrow he brings his offerings after he hath bathed the second time, as we have declared. You can see how involved this is. Jesus says you need to go and do that, even though you're already clean, even though you're already reconciled, even though you're already connected. So he had to go to the priests eventually if he was going to be brought back in. Why didn't the leper obey, though? Why did he tell everybody what had happened? He had to go eventually to the priest, but why didn't he keep his mouth shut? That cost Jesus dearly. I think, it doesn't tell us, we can't know, but I think he was just so excited about it, he couldn't contain himself. He said, you know what just happened? You know, it's going to be like that. He was just so excited. Wouldn't you be? Oh my gosh. After being afflicted like that, maybe for years, to suddenly be able to come back into your family life, into life at all. But Jesus now can no longer even enter a city. He's being mobbed by the people. Not only that, he's got the enmity of the priests, of the temple authorities. And he's got to worry about them now. And then finally, he's also being looked at as ritually unclean. So he's kind of persona non grata here, and he goes out into unpopulated areas. Now, does the leper, you think, come back to him and thank him? Does the leper come back and maybe start following Jesus because of this incredible miracle that has taken place. We also don't know. We aren't told. We can't know. You know, Did he or didn't he? There's a revealing little story at Luke 17, starting at verse 11. We're going to read that right now. Now, while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. So at least they're keeping their distance. And they raised their voices and saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Here's Jesus never missing an opportunity to stick it in and twist it because, you know, the Jews hated the Samaritans. But he always loves to make a Samaritan a hero of the story to just show them once again, it's not about pedigree, it's not about ethnicity, it's not about ritual. It's about the condition of your heart. Come on, people. He's trying to get them to see that over and over again. Then Jesus answered and said, were not there ten who were cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Only one out of ten comes back. Just one out of ten. Which begs the question, how often did Jesus really get to see the outcomes of his work? How often did he get to see what his word, what his healing touch, what his relationship with people had, the effect that it had on their lives. How often did he get to see that? Did he ever get to see that? Sometimes, of course. But maybe not as often as we would think. 
And you want to know what the hardest part of being a pastor from my 21 years of experience now is? It's watching people come and go. That's the hardest thing that I got to do. You know? At the beginning, when I first started, I, I just thought when people finally came to church and they connected, that we were going to be friends for life. You know, just best buds forever. And then it was this revolving door, you know, because people come in for all sorts of different reasons. And they go out for all sorts of other different reasons. And it's just the way of it. There's nothing wrong with that. You can't hold on to people forever. But it's hard because you don't really get to see what happens. What's the end of the story? Where, where's uh, Paul Harvey right now? I want to hear the rest of the story. What happens when they leave? What happens to the rest of their life? Do they continue on? Does something else happen? It would be so great to know. And that's the thing that is difficult. I suppose it's the same with teachers. I taught school once. I didn't teach long enough, though. I taught about three years, and it was middle school. But I do remember when a class came in, and you just got to know the kids, and you finally were starting to get somewhere with them, you know, and now it's June, and it's time for summer vacation, and then you don't get that class back. You get the next class, and it's like, oh, I miss those guys, you know. So you teachers out there, I'm sure you feel the same thing. The kids that come in and the ones that you, that you bond with and the ones that you really come to love and you have them for such a short time and then they move on. Now, at least in a school, you can maybe see them from time to time and see how they're doing. But not so much for pastors and maybe not so much for Jesus either. And we don't even have to go outside the home. How about your parents? When you've raised a child and now it's empty nest time, how does that feel? Yeah. How's that outcome looking to you? Now, hopefully we stay in relationship with our kids and we know how well they're doing or not, but still it's not the same as when they're in your home, even if some of you might be looking forward to that time. Because we like to assume and we like to believe that relationships last a lifetime. I remember there was this movie that, uh, that one of the great lines was, you know, what is it about having a friend in high school where you just assume that you're going to be friends for life? So maybe, you know, those friendships just sort of run out after a while and they're just riding around on air. But we assume that, that everything is going to last for a lifetime. But when it comes right down to it and you live long enough and you move through enough relationships, you start to realize that most of the relationships you'll experience in your life are just moments of connection. Just these moments where everything kind of comes into focus and it's there for a while, but it just keeps moving. You wish it would stop, but it's always moving. It's in focus, and then it's back out again, and then it comes back in. And that is the nature of most of the relationships that we're going to experience in life. Thirty years ago, when I was just starting this journey, and I was just spun, you know, trying to figure this out, and not getting any real local help, I remember looking out and trying to find, I went to a retreat center that was run by the Franciscans in Malibu, I looked for the American Catholic Church, because uh, I thought, well, maybe they were more forward-thinking than the regular Catholic Church, because they were in schism with Rome, and allowed priests to marry, and you could be divorced and still accepted and all these kind of good things. And there was a priest that, that uh, I met. I just went and kind of barged in his office and made him sit down with me. And I still remember his name to this day. And I only met him once, just that one afternoon. His name was Father Erskine. 
And he took time with me, and he was one of the key teachers in my life because he finally realized, you know, that he wasn't going to get rid of me that easily. And so he said, well, how much time you got? I'm like, I got time. You want to take a ride? Sure. Took me to a Catholic bookstore and started pointing at book covers, and I bought everything he pointed at. But he introduced me to Thomas Merton and Henry Nowen and Brennan Manning and Augustine and, and the others that were going to be so instrumental in what I was learning. And when I went up to Malibu and I met Father Fallon, he was the first one that I sat down with, and he took the time to talk to me. And then I would come back and sit in on his sessions. And then, of course, Emery Tang, who I talk about all the time, you know, wanted to debate with him one time. And he just put his hand in my face and said, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And he wouldn't sit and listen to me debate with him. How many times has he had done that in his life, right? But these three men, such key teachers in my life, pillars in, the, in my spiritual formation. And I thought that we would always reconnect. I thought somehow that we'd stay in touch. And I saw Father Erskine that one time and never again. I sent him a letter to try to thank him. Never got a return, so I don't even know if he got it. You know? And now Father Fallon and Father Tang are dead, and I never did reconnect with them. But you know what? I've realized that wasn't the biggest part of it. It didn't really matter whether we stayed connected, what mattered that we were connected. You know, I've, I've had enough time to look at life from both sides now. Are you hearing the song? Okay. I've looked at life from both sides now. And I've seen the way it is. I was the, the, the green newcomer, and now I'm the one who's hopefully helping those who are trying to find their way. And I see the way of it. I see how it works. And I see the necessity of it. Because all of us, we show up. If we show up, we show up, right? We show up. We, if we break the boundary, our own self-imposed boundaries first, our own sense of shame, right? Our fear of disconnection, our unwillingness to risk something, to be vulnerable in the relationship, and then we connect, and then we exchange something, we give something, and then we have to let go. Because if we can't let go, then we're descending into codependency. And if we can't let go, then it was that the gift was not freely given. There were strings attached. We needed something back from that relationship. It wasn't just a free, open exchange. We didn't just show up. That's what this is all about. I think that's what Jesus is really showing us here. Sabah ana. I am willing. I have the willingness. I have the desire. I have the purpose to break this boundary, to accept you, to connect with you, and then to give this gift, even if it's just my presence, which is in, in fact healing in and of itself. And I'm willing to let the outcome not be important. It's not about the outcome. It's about just doing what I do, what we do, because it is our sebiana, because it is our deepest purpose, because there is no other track that we can follow anymore, because it's become who we are. It's just the air we breathe now. It's what we do. We may never know the outcomes of the relationships that we have, even the shorter ones. 
but we are going to know those moments of connection and we'll never forget them. We're going to remember their names of the ones that we really connect with even after 30 or 40 years. We think of life as being a means to some sort of end, as if life were a task to be performed. But life is not a task. It doesn't work that way. Life is just lived moments of connection. The only ends are the means that we are processing at the moment. The means are the only ends that we'll ever know as we live our lives. We fixate on those ends. We fixate as if everything is going to be all right when we finally get to this particular outcome. And if we get to that outcome, even if we do, it's just a moment that passes through into something else. The only thing that persists are the means. The only thing that persists is the lived moment of connection. Jesus is trying to teach us this. He's showing us that if we are willing to break these boundaries, let nothing stand between us. If we're willing to move beyond the limitations that we have set for ourselves, that have been set because of the traumas and the fears and the neglect and everything that we've gone through in life, and all of the other limitations that our churches and our institutions and our society have also placed on us, are we willing to take out the middleman? Are we willing to become the middleman and just realize that our own identity is in the connection? Who we are is defined by connection, and the moment of connection is what shows us who we are. Then we are really following Jesus. It's not about thoughts of longevity, of relationship, or anything else. It's no thoughts about rewards, certainly, about outcome or leaving a legacy. All of those fade away in that moment of connection if we are really sold out to it, if we are immersed in it, if we allow ourselves to dive so deep into those waters that everything else is displaced and we only give because we can't help it. <laughs> it's who we are. And we're working ourselves out of a job with the people that we're serving by empowering them to be able to do the same in every encounter that they have. It's not about holding on. It's about letting go. Always relinquishment. Letting them stay with us, the people of our lives, for a little while and then fly away. Like those Instagram videos you see of people healing small birds. You know, as soon as they're healed, let them fly away and make room for the next connection that's coming around the corner because there's always another one and another one and another one. And through all that, there's always going to be a few relationships that last. They are anchor points. Hopefully there are significant others, but relationships that will always last or relationships that even if they are broken by geography or whatever, that when you get together again, it's as if no time has passed, like watching a soap opera and coming back to it. It's just like no time has passed. Those will be there for you, but the majority of them are always moving. Can we be comfortable with that balance? Can we find the balance? Can we allow things to simply flow? 
And even those relationships that stay with us for a lifetime are still only experienced as moments of living connection. That's it. I think that Khalil Gibran, Lebanese poet and sculptor and artist, captured this idea of how relationships work when we're willing to let ourselves completely become vulnerable and abandon ourselves to a relationship and how they come through us and out when he was just talking about our children. So in his masterpiece, The Prophet, there is one little essay on children. And I want to close with this and see if this kind of brings the point home. He writes, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark along the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he also loves the bow that is stable. That's it. Not just with our children, but with everyone that we meet and purpose to serve. Can we let them fly? Can we be okay with the uncertainties of life and the movement of relationships in and out as if respirating, as if breathing in our lives? Then we're following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, some of these are difficult for us because they're also painful, because we get hurt, and because that pain stays with us and layers over and creates new ways of thinking and feeling that limit us in ways that we didn't imagine and aren't totally conscious of. So we pray this morning for more and more awareness, more and more ability to see and be present and to understand the forces that are creating repeated patterns that keep us separated from you and from each other. With this awareness, help us to see what is required in the moment for us to break the boundary that is holding us from connection and give us the courage to be willing to risk what needs to be risked in order to break that boundary and reconnect and realize in that connection lies everything it means to be a person and your child. So thank you, Father, for everything that you give us all along the way. Help us to continue to walk closer and closer to you each and every day. And in that process, never let us forget that we can only love because you already loved us first. 
Let me pray all this in Jesus' name. Let's stand.